Okay, good morning, everyone. Um, Pardon me. Okay, um, good morning. Thanks for coming to our session. Um, this is, uh, as I read it, I read it, Scrapbook's Personal and Community History in the Digital Age. We have sort of a wonky room, and um, these things happen, you know. So if you want to see the person speaking and the slides, we suggest you lean heavily to the far wall if you are okay with the slightly disembodied voice and maybe glimpses of us, we're here. We're, we're being recorded, so we are kind of limited. We can't wander around and make sure everybody can see us because they, they'd like to hear us on the recording too. I'm not gonna, I'm just gonna do a quick, uh, quick introduction, that's what I want, an introduction of the speakers. And then I will let the speakers really talk about our topic. We were to have, there's to be four of us originally and um, because as things happen in life and in jobs, one of our speakers couldn't be here. And that's Laurel Caldwell Anderson, and she's the archivist with the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. And I just want to publicly thank her for all of her work and her time, even though her name didn't make it in the program and she didn't get to be on the dais with us. She did work on this project, so we want to thank Laura for being here, and I hope she's having fun wherever she is. Um, the, and speaking in Laura's place and also then doing her part, um, we, Lee Grinstead will have her do that work too. Um, Lee Grinstead is, uh, she's got more, I'm going to read this. She has more than 20 years experience working in, muse as, in museum administration, overseeing collections and conducting preservation assessments and collection inventories. Lee has managed National Endowment for the Humanities Institute for Museum and Library Services grants, including Colorado Statewide Connecting to Connect connecting to collections, planning grants, and consulted in other areas. Her love of program management, grants work, and administration have served her well, and um, with nearly a half a decade with the collaborative digitization programs. Um, Lee is now a, a consultant with Lyricist and a trainer with Lyricist, and she also is an artist and deals with forms of scrapbooks in her own life let alone dealing with them with our collections. And Lee is based out of Denver, Colorado, and she was recently elected to serve on the AASLH Council, so good job being here with council members in this space. Okay. Our other speaker is Katie Mullen, and Katie is, has an MSIS and a CAS in conservation from the University of Texas in Austin, and she has served as conservator at, uh, for the SUNY Library, and SUNY Albany Libraries, and also in the Indiana State Library and State Archives. And most recently, she is the preservation coordinator at the Wisconsin State Historical Society Library and Archives. Katie is also, I gotta say this, she's the um, sec preservation section chair at the Society of American Archivists. Good job, Katie. Okay. I'm Alex Bentrude. I'm, if I didn't say that, I don't know if I said that. I'm the preservation services librarian with Lyricist. I've dealt with scrapbooks off and on from being a public library, working in a public library reference area and opening a drawer and finding some amazing things to now working as a consultant and working in preservation, helping people with their scrapbooks. And I have to say I'm intrigued because every scrapbook has its own little alarm and drama. And so hopefully we can talk through some things today that actually will help all of you out. And I was supposed to show everybody's names. <laughs> Good job, we're already ahead of the game. Excellent, <laughs> okay. Lee, if you want to come on up and get started. Great. Let's see if I can do this here. 
Look at that. All right. Um, good morning, everyone. Thank you for coming on Saturday morning. This is um, really an exciting and fun topic, and I, and I hope you enjoy it. So um, I have some notes that I am going to read, and we're going to move through pretty quickly, and then I'm going to turn it over to Katie and then come back to the, the podium here. Scrapbooks and albums are a creative, often highly imaginative form of human record. Scrapbooks are unique, and because of their great numbers, preservation of every scrapbook and album in the original format is impossible. The money and the human power to do the job just doesn't exist. Some must indeed be preserved in the original form, retaining as much artifactual integrity as possible, regardless of cost. However, for many scrapbooks and albums, other choices need to be made. These include duplication, basic stabilization rather than complete treatment, substitution of the scrapbook format with another format, or some combination of all three. And Katie's going to dig into some of these options, and I'm not going to steal her thunder. Um, but to start us off this morning, I'm going to give a little bit of historical context and background history, and I'm going to try and fly through this. Um, some of the strange things you may find in a scrapbook. I once found bubble gum inside a scrapbook placed there del deliberately, believe it or not. Other, other things that I have come across include um, wood and an umbilical cord, scab, matches, hair, a stuffed doll. Most commonly, you should expect to see photographs, postcards, newspaper clippings, advertisements, greeting cards, calling cards, pamphlets, menus, posters, maps. You'll come across all of those. You might also find plant matter, like pressed flowers and other ephemera. Anyone else want to yell out any other oddities that you may have found? Yes. Tobacco. Anybody else? Dance cards, okay. Matchbooks, yep. Pens, pencils, right? This, you'll notice that the um, autograph page here, has, you know, autographs, the pencil is actually embedded in the book. Okay. A garter, there you go. Lovely. I'm not sure what it is about scrapbooking that's turned what could be a simple craft requiring only paper and scissors and some adhesives into a national obsession, or what was a national obsession, and that's changing a little bit. Jessica Helfand of Yale University wrote this book in November of 2008 called Scrapbooks and American History. And she was, in part, inspired to write the book when she made some comments on her design blog and was inundated with comments from people who feel very passionately about the craft and by those that just hate scrapbooks. <laughs> Perhaps these books allow for personal artistic expression in a society more and more focused on results. And maybe they aren't always beautiful, artistic, eye-catching pages. Maybe they're just eye-catching, right? Maybe the appeal is the memories they invoke of loved ones or happy times. So there is this nod to nostalgia. Or perhaps it's the idea of making a book that's about your family, your traditions, your pets, your favorite hobbies, or pastimes. And if you get a chance to pick this book up, it is fascinating. I would highly recommend it. 
whatever the appeal in um, about 2008-2009, um, scrapbooking had made its way into nearly 25% of all American households. And they generated, in the, again, this is around 2008, before the Great Recession, but it was generating somewhere between three and four billion dollars a year in revenue. And where are all these scrapbooks going to end up? Some of them, inevitably, will be coming to an archive, special collections, historical society, or a museum near you. Please raise your hand if you've ever scrapbooked. This is sort of an unscientific goal. Yeah, so about a quarter, maybe a third of the room. Okay. So let's start the discussion today. Um, I thought we'd learn a little bit about what is now known as a craft. For centuries, people have collaged and filled blank page books with quotes, clippings, letters, and pictures to preserve personal inspiration, document the times in which they lived, and create a private work that expresses their own interior dialogue. Today's scrapbooks are distantly related to what were called commonplace books, used by Renaissance scholars, philosophers, doctors, and poets to write down memorable quotes, verses, jokes, devotional texts, as well as their own musings. More than diaries, they incorporate much of others' work and thought, and as you might expect, commonplace books were not limited to scholarly ramblings, but were also, uh, they reflected the thoughts and emotions of the young women of the day as well. Um, do any of you have commonplace books in your collection? I actually created a commonplace book, and until I did the research for this, I did not know that's what I was creating. Thomas Jefferson's scrapbook. Our third president and author of the Declaration of Independence kept scrapbooks during his eight-year presidential stint from 1801 to 1809. The contents of his scrapbook include poetry and articles on medicine, farming, education, architecture, morality, and politics. They even include criticisms of his presidency. Jefferson's scrapbooks loosely mirrored the basic cultural purview of his generation. He kept materials that were somewhat at odds with his more public persona. In addition, the president's scrapbooks reveal an abundance of poems and songs praising precisely the life Jefferson didn't lead, did not lead, according to Jessica Helfand. Unlike his political views, which were sometimes veered towards the radical, Jefferson's domestic values tend to reflect the common verities of 18th century um, literature and life. There are po poems praising moderation and temperance, uh, the benefits of matrimony and conjugal love, and the importance of choosing a spouse based on virtue rather than on physical beauty. There were three publications between 1825 and 1832 that really give impetus to the middle class during Eng England's Regency period. A periodical called, oddly, The Scrapbook, published in 1825, gave readers ideas on how to picture, how to use pictures and newspaper clippings. One year later in 1826, manuscript gleanings and li the literary scrapbook by John Poole was printed. Poole's book was a printed volume of poems and engravings along with a one-page introduction to the idea of the commonplace journal, and he gave tips on arranging and collecting scraps. In 1832, Henry Fisher built on Poole's work and gave graphic examples and encouraged the crave, craze for cr scrap collecting. 
He later created a series of drawing room scrap sheets, which were printed with the idea that collectors of the natural world, botanists, for example, um, might paste specimens into sheets and later bind them together into their own handmade books, their own handmade herbaria. There are personal herbarium in the collection at the Denver Botanic Gardens that illustrate this kind of idea, um, and, and this is an example of that. It's a little bit later, circa 1889, but it's that, that same idea. Do any of you have natural history scrapbooks or personal herbarium in your collection? A couple. Interesting. Okay, cool. Um, scraps are, of course, the colorful embossed release, reliefs that were first produced in the early 1800s. Publishers produced picture sheets that were uncolored or at extra cost, hand-colored and sold at stationery stores and booksellers. They are said to have originated in German baker's shops where they were used to decorate cakes. These scraps were later used as decorative additions to Christmas cards and Valentines, and they were also used to illustrate historical and popular events of the time. How does Mark Twain fit into all of this? Uh, Samuel Clemens is supposed to have carried his scrapbooks wherever he traveled, filling more than 300 volumes with pictures, souvenirs, and articles about his books and performances. In 1872, he became frustrated with the difficulties of working with paper and paste, so he patented a self-adhesive scrapbook, which he successfully marketed as Mark Twain's patent scrapbook. But I know. The title is great. You would think Mark Twain would have come up with something a little bit more enticing, but he did not. So by 1901, he had sold at least 57 different types of albums, reportedly raking in $50,000 with this, this invention, which was more profitable than all his other books combined, which just shocks me. Um, by the mid-19th century, companies begin to produce leather albums with pre-printed pages devotion devoted to different themes. They were awfully, off, often heavily embellished with flowers and birds. Carte de visite albums with pockets for images and pages for watercolors and pencil drawings were also very popular. Um, first introduced in 1900, the Brownie camera sold for $1, making picture-taking hugely affordable to the average citizen, and thereby putting photography within everyone's reach. Photography enabled the aspiring autobiographer to crystallize memories as they were happening, and was, for that matter, a significant catalyst in the visualization of memory in scrapbook form. This is when you begin to see photographs appear in albums alongside ephemera and text in the way that we begin to think about scrapbooks. What we've seen until now is that scrapbooks tended to be individual artistic expressions, even if rather formal. They were nonetheless homemade and gathered interpretations of a theme or an idea rather than an album of memories, which is what we think about when we think about scrapbooks now. By World War I, the physical memento was the focus. Physical objects were meant to ev evoke a specific time and place. This is where we find these firecrackers, hair, tickets, peanut shells, leaves, stain samples. That was a good one. Fabric, feathers, cigarettes, gum, you name it, they're in there. You have to wonder what the objects themselves bring to mind for the creator because we as voyeurs are almost certainly lost as to the significance of the articles that were created, collected. 
At this time, you also see the emergence of more and more social associations and groups associated with children, like Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, Campfire Girls, 4-H, right? With the teens and into the jazz age, scrapbooks or stunt books, and I have one here. Um, stunt books, as they were called, became more and more autobiographical, and the author starts to become revealed. Publishers create forms to be used, pre-printed pages, and um, they create pre-printed pages with a narrative line. Interestingly, at this time, the attempt to introduce an organizational system backfired as often as not with titles scratched out or materials pasted in without interest in chronology or any kind of a linear storyline. In the 1920s, words become more important and scrapbooks begin to show more mo a more modern aesthetic in terms of design. And then there are these celebrity or star scrapbooks in the 20s and 30s. Pop culture, celebrity, obsession, and worship became part of the scrapbooking world and has certainly continued on through today if you ever stand in a grocery store checkout line. Many of these books became a cross between a private diary and a public album. And as an autobiography form, they are highly suspect. But as a form, they can be seen as documenting social history, I think, very well. Between the wars, blank scrapbook production declines, but publishers push the production of memory books. Memory books were books whose pages were pre-formatted, designating where things should go, which often meant segregating word, like clippings, correspondence from images, photographs, and drawings, and thereby crafting a more controlled environment for personal storytelling. The pre-printed memory books soon fostered a climate of subtle editorial management with pages parsing individual moments at a glance. And here's where a significant cultural shift occurs. Whereas earlier scrapbooks were often produced from the materials at hand, lending a very haphazard and distinctly homespun quality to the resulting books, the anticipation of memory was a core emotional need, one with, one with a personalized and mighty visual component. Was a, that is a uniquely 20th century conceit. If earlier, if earlier public sentiment had advocated the joy and thrift of making an album on your own, modern views of practicality, organization, and heightened efficiency privilege these newer editions, commercially produced and often copiously illustrated, these books that classified memorable, memorable events in advance of them ever happening. The rise in production of memory books often tailored to a specific interest group like brides, Boy Scouts, babies, and their fawning parents greatly facilitated Americans' growing urge not only to save but to document. And this trend has started in the 19-teens for all areas of your life like graduations, baby books, club books. By World War II, you see books that are distinctly patriotic being marketed to soldiers to capture their memories and service as if a soldier would ever forget their service. These mass-marketed, pre-printed books remain in place today. Okay. In 1976, Mary Ellen Christensen began designing creative pages for her family's photo memories. She inserted her memory pages into a new product called Sheet Protectors and placed them inside three-ring binders. 
By 1980, she'd assembled over 50 volumes of family memories and was invited that year to display her albums and demonstrate her concept at the World Conference on Records in Salt Lake City. That conference opened the door to a massive interest in memory book design, and Mary Ellen was introduced, uh, was invited to give seminars and teach classes to countless groups, including BYU Campus Education Week and numerous church, civic, and school groups. During the following 25 years, she lectured continually throughout the Intermountain West. What was once a really personal form has become much more social, a much more publicly oriented and group oriented craft. What was once something torn and ephemeral is now considered a craft. One of the primary differences, I think, between what was created before and what is today is the emphasis on using new materials. And here's another. You've all seen this kind of thing. You want to pass this one? Go the other way. Now we see the next wave of products um, that are coming out online scrapbooks that can be printed on demand or sent as they are. And Alex is going to kind of jump into this a little bit later on. As we've already heard, people across all times have kept their memories in scrapbooks. That's one of the reasons America has such a rich history, because of the documentation of important events in self-made books with keepsakes and mementos stuffed into the bindings of these books. The four scrapbooks of Thomas Jefferson are extraordinary because they embody the breadth of Jefferson's interests. Scrapbooks have been revealing a person's personality for hundreds of years, for example, but not only their personality, but their understanding of politics, their faith traditions, recipes, and traditions passed down through families. When popular advertising trade cards were used to promote products and businesses, you begin to see why some of these document our culture so well. Most of these items would have been lost forever had they not been saved in a lot of these period books. So... Some of the um, interesting, just to run through these very quickly, recycled ledger books. Um, this ledger book was converted into a scrapbook. The sometimes the material underneath the um, scraps is more valuable now, you know, as a documentary piece, than, than the scrapbook itself. Um, here's a ledger book I came across in Colorado. They um, put tabs on the side for all of the uh, counties in Colorado and then put clippings, pictures, postcards of each of their visits to counties. I, it was just an odd, an oddity. Um, catalogs were reused. This is an automobile catalog that was turned into a scrapbook. Um, this one is a um, uh, tailoring, a uniforms uh, Military and police uniforms, um, leaders in fine, ta fine tailoring, got turned into a scrapbook, so they just pasted right on top of the pages there. Um, this is the woman who Atlanta was named for. Yep. Uh, notebooks, little travel notebooks, things glued into those. And then these are some interesting ones. Um, these are... Uh, from the Amachi Preservation Society on the left here, uh, Japanese um, intern, in, um, someone who served, uh, served, was interred, excuse me, interned at um, Amachi in Colorado, carved and uh, created the cover for this scrapbook. 
and then the University of Southern Mississippi has a couple of Hamnay's scrapbooks, and they've made these covers to go along with them, wooden covers. Very interesting. Some of the commercial ones that are out there. And then, of course, the magnetic albums, the classic magnetic albums. Okay, so I'm off. Um, Haiti. There we go. And I think I from the beginning. There we go. Thank you. Hi. I'm Katie Mullen. Uh, my charge for today is to discuss preservation methods uh, for scrapbooks with a focus on novel types of interventive treatment. When Alex initially approached me about presenting on this topic, my immediate response was, heck yes, I want to talk about that. I've seen some really crazy things done with scrapbooks in our collections. They're one of the hardest things to deal with. I'd rather deal with nitrate film than I would with scrapbook <laughs> often. Am I saying something? Yeah. Um, I think Lee nailed it when she identified scrapbooks as a, as a polarizing medium. Uh, and I tend to fall into the, the hater camp, even though I realize I've created one or two um, <laughs> in my life. Uh, as a conservator, my blood pressure ticks up a notch when I walk into a store and see this and wonder when these acid-free, glittery wonders are going to start showing up in the collections I care for. But while I was preparing for this talk, I ran into an unanticipated route of empathy for scrapbookers. This particular video really caught my attention. And true to the law of conferences, I was having problems playing this video this morning, so just bear with me for a moment. I'm going to back out and actually go to the clip, which I have saved separately. my laptop I have no idea what I've just done but it works all right yes so this is Lindsay the fruit frugal crafter and Lindsay and I talked hi there Lindsay here the frugal crafter I've had something on my mind all week and I want to know what you think one of the biggest scrapbooking stores on the internet, in fact, the first scrapbooking website I ever even heard of, you know, 12 years ago when I began scrapbooking, Two Peas in a Bucket, closed last week, or they announced that they were closing. And before that, a couple weeks earlier, my favorite scrapbook store online, Custom Crops, closed. And the last couple of crops I went to hardly had anybody there, and one had nobody there. I was the only one. Is scrapbooking dead? Is anybody scrapbooking anymore? I was, uh... So... I thought Lindsay also offered a really nice contrast to my pres presentation style. <laughs> so, of, of course, those of us who deal with text-based materials have heard that refrain before, um, and I, I thought it was uh, really interesting uh, to see um, a creator uh, say it also. I watched further, um, and I found Lindsay offering a perspective that I hadn't considered before that of preservation uh, of scrapbooks themselves as a method of preservation or facebook or 
is that how they're sharing photos? Are they just not bothering to print them and put them in a book for posterity? I mean, we nobody owns, I mean, well, somebody does, but we don't. We don't own Facebook. We don't own our blogs. We don't own YouTube. We don't own Twitter. These things could go away and with them our memories and our photos. And I think that's a shame that people aren't actually printing them out and that kids can't go to the shelf and pull off a book and look at pictures from when they were two. You know, my kids do that all the time and I'm so glad that they can. through that. All right. Got the PowerPoint back up. Uh, so it, Lindsay gave me permission to use these. Um, I'm not saying that I'm convinced, um, perhaps as Lindsay is, that scrapbooks are the unexpected solution to digital preservation problems. <laughs> but looking at this did shake me out of my contention as a conservator that they are what hopeless evil objects to deal with and allow me to step allow me to step into a more empathetic position with the creator of scrapbooks who really want to see their content preserved. So as Lee covered in detail, um, scrapbooks fall into a storied category of materials historically rooted in commonplace books and European friendship albums. Their status as particularly problematic for preservation begins, like so many other modern preservation problems, with the introduction of brittle wood pulp paper in the 19th century. But the problem is literally a compound one due to their layered complex nature. While as a conservator and a devotee of material culture, I firmly believe that it's QED that the original format of a material provides some context for social and technological history in every case. It's clear from looking at these pictures that so much of the information in scrapbooks is truly presented in a contextual manner through association and layering of data. So what are the best treatment options for scrapbooks? Well, the notion of the best treatment for you or for your institution is going to be highly dependent, first on what the nature of the particular scrapbooks you have are, and also very much dependent on the size of your collection versus your resources. Next, I'll discuss some various fixes in order from least to most interventive, which is also generally the least to most work intense. So you may, uh, you may wish to do no more than house your scrapbook well and give it some protection from the environment by wrapping it or boxing it in the typical archivally sound materials. And just a note on the slides, while I'm discussing these treatment options, I've inserted this gauge on your left, um, identifying the level of intervention. It's somewhat based on my opinion, you're free to disagree. A further step you might take since the preservation problem in scrapbooks so often has to do with the fact that brittle paper must flex in a rigid line created by a poster laced binding, a potential solution for some of the books is simply to loosen the laces or to remove blank pages so that there is room for more gentle flexion of pages. Next to consider. If it is the items within your scrapbook which are causing problems, you might wish to either isolate them within the book if you think acidity or some sort of chemical reaction is the problem. The scrapbook in this photo shows an historic original envelope structure used to isolate certain elements. Obviously, these particular ones are made of deteriorating materials, but it shows the general idea. 
you might even just lift up a loose clipping and slip paper or a mylar sheet under it or enclose organic material such as a lock of hair in a paper or polyester envelope. Getting into a little more intervention with the object itself, you might wish to reattach items to pages if they are falling off or sliding around. Uh, per oh, sorry, actually, I think I'm on the wrong slide. There we go. I'm going to go back to that one in a minute. Um, getting into a little more intervention with the object, you might wish to reattach items to the pages if they are falling off or sliding around. Perhaps the way which follows the principle of minimal intervention the best is to use archival photo corners, which can be made out of paper or plastic that is then adhered to the scrapbook. More invasive, but perhaps sometimes necessary, is the use of a good quality reversible starch paste used directly on a clipping within the scrapbook to re-adhere it. If your concern is acidic paper or acid migration between the items in your scrapbook, one option is to interleave the pages with good quality thin paper. The Library Preservation Department at Iowa State University has recommended a paper called Phototex. They found this paper useful for scrapbooks containing primarily photographs. Phototex is an unbuffered, thin tissue paper that is not hard to get from archival suppliers. It's available from Gaylord, University Products, and others. If, on the other hand, you're comfortable using a buffered paper with your particular scrapbook, Permalife is not a bad option for interleaving. It, it, it is a little bit thicker than the phototex. Um, the reason for the picture on the right uh, is that I want you to keep in mind that if you're interleaving, if you add enough material to the pages, <laughs> you're going to add stress to the binding. It's not necessarily going to help you. And you'll end up with a nice wedge shape. Building on the notion of interleaving, uh, but much more intensive, an option is to do some sort of page-by-page -page rehousing. This is useful where the binding is really brittle and has maybe even broken off already at the flexing point. It has the advantage of still preserving the character and most of the context of the item. This book has just been taken apart and folded. An intensive and fairly expensive option that we often use for very brittle, high-value items at the Historical Society is to disbind the item, encapsulate each page with considerable room at the gutter edge to account for the inclusion of posts and to create a new post-found item. You can also insert the covers of your old scrapbook into something like that so you preserve the original elements of the original binding also. They're heavy. And as I mentioned, they're expensive. This treatment option costs dollars per page because of the cost of the mylar, but they're wonderful for retaining the order of the item and something of the original look while allowing for a lot of handling. A value-added option um, that I've heard of people using with these types of encapsulated scrapbooks is to cut a window flap into the mylar over places where you have layered items that are meant to be flipped through. Lyricist is going to start offering the service. <laughs> so the, the benefit is, is that you have the um, encapsulated pages and that does keep the brittle paper um, together and supported, 
but you're able to get at the items the way they were meant to be gotten at and flipped through. Just one aside about supplies. Uh, we happen to have a Minter welder in-house. That's fairly unusual. A smaller institution might not have that. You can buy archival polyester envelopes for that type of binding that I just described that are specifically made to size for your item from a vendor called Atlantic Protective Pouches. It's a one-person operation, sort of a cottage industry, um, and it can often take months to get them, but they're well-made, um, and it's a, a, a big work saver um, not to have to do this yourself. And of course, if you can't do it without a mentor welder, this may be your best option. Hmm. Some more slides out of order, I think. I think maybe I grabbed an earlier version of my, uh... all right, so no slide for this, but a very intense option, um, perhaps the most interventive option there is, is simply to remove the items from a scrapbook, house them in various parts of your collection. For example, your photos, photos with your iconography collections and your letters with your manuscripts. Um, and you keep the associations then between them only by use of cataloging and, the met and metadata. This was a new idea to me, um, but there is in fact a post on the AASLH blog that discusses the use of this type of metadata association to retain the context for scrapbooks. So on the less interventive side, um, the options of reformatting. Unfortunately, traditional analog preservation reformatting methods have left a lot to be desired in the case of scrapbooks because of the layers and colors of the original. This particular picture shows a photocopy of a scrapbook. In our case at the Wisconsin Historical Society, I believe that in the past, the society used copying as a means of acquiring scrapbook material when people weren't ready to let go of an original. I'm not sure you would recognize from this picture that this is a scrapbook without me telling you, but that is what it is. Uh, obviously, much of the context is lost. On the other hand, um, reformatting is really one of the best and one of the only options to deal with the large-scale problems of brittle paper. Of course, if you're going to use photocopying, you want to meet ANSI standards for permanent paper, um, as with Permalife, and also the standards for toner adhesion. Similar to photocopying, microfilming leaves something to be desired when it comes to scrapbooks, even though it's a great preservation option in its own right for brittle paper. The picture on the left shows an image from a scrapbook that a large advertising company kept of their campaigns. On the right, you see a microfilm image of the same page. While the image itself is not at all bad for a microfilm image of a mostly textless picture, obviously the Kool-Aid pumpkin has suffered in the translation. <laughs> it may be that digital reformatting offers the best hope for a good reformatting option for scrapbook material but I'm going, to, I'm going to let Lee tell you more about digitization of scrapbooks in a moment. Before I do hand over the podium, I just want to share a few resources about scrapbook preservation with you. Um, Alex, part of ALA, just hosted a great webinar that goes into more detail about scrapbook preservation. Uh, it was run by the conservator from Iowa State University where they're doing a large-scale scrapbook preservation project. It's available on the Alex YouTube website 
There's also a handout which accompanies the presentation that categorizes types of scrapbook treatments that I found very useful in preparing this presentation. The Campbell Center in Illinois hosts a course on the care of scrapbooks. Uh, we at the Wisconsin Historical Society sent a technician from our conservation lab in 2011 to the class, and that's where I got the idea about cutting um, the flaps into the encapsulated post findings. You will have to look for this class next year, however. Uh, this year's author offering happens to be taking place this weekend. Yeah. Finally, a more traditional text-based website with general preservation advice about scrapbooks is hosted by the Library of Congress Preservation Directorate. And if you Google the titles of any of these, you'll come up with them fairly easily. So I'm gonna turn the podium, I believe, back over to Lee. Great. That is so interesting that, that, that just, that's really cool. Putting it in the mylar, love it, just love it. Okay. So, <clears throat> thinking about digitization, how many of you have an active digitization program at your institution now? Okay. Kinda, kinda. Active might be a too strong a word, okay. Um, how many of you have used something like the collaborative digitization programs, digitization best practices, digital imaging best practices, one, two? Um, or other best practices? Do you have guidelines and best practices for imaging? Okay. How many of you have made up your own standards? Yeah, there we go. There's some honest, all right, okay, all right. You've created something, okay. All right, there are best practices out there that I will point you to um, to look at. There are uh, standards and best practices for image capture that will allow you to continue to preserve your items in a, in a in a healthy way. Okay. Within the um, within the digital imaging guidelines, um, you will find uh, the, the Federal Agency Digitization Guidelines um, Initiative, the FAGI Guidelines, um, the Collaborative Digitization Program Digital Imaging Guidelines, um, uh, best practices, you'll find guidelines for different source type materials. So for text or artwork or graphics or three-dimensional objects. And just to give you a sense of um, some of these guidelines here, um, this is sort of what the chart looks like. Um, for photographs, you would capture a master file as a TIFF file either 48-bit um, color or 16-bit grayscale, somewhere between 400 to 800 pixels per inch if you can get 4,000 to 8,000 pixels across the long dimension um, of the original. Photographs, of course, have lots of digitization challenges. Scrapbooks have incredible digitization challenges, and we're going to continue to talk about those. And I'm going to show you some successful um, digitization projects uh, where I think they have really captured the essence of the scrapbook very well and I'm going to show you some ones that aren't maybe quite as successful I think. So here are the um, digital imaging best practices on the Lyricist website. We, If you go to lyricist.org you can type in digital toolbox and you will come up with um, 
best practices for metadata, for audio, for imaging, and um, we also have hundreds of articles on preservation um, of analog physical materials and digital preservation uh, articles as well. Some of the pros and cons to digitization, um, obviously I think the preservation of the analog in a way, you can box it, you can put it away, you can still you know, access the content. Um, it provides access to fragile content and fragile materials. It also, this is a real pro in my book, it gives you the ability to create protocols for digital capture and to adopt standards at the institution. Some of the cons can be that the complexity of the originals themselves, as we are aware, um, can, their context can be lost depending on your decisions that, uh, the decisions that you make when you're doing the capturing. So let me show you a couple of examples. First, I'd like to look at the University of Washington's Library Special Collections. Specifically, we're gonna look at a collection of Mountaineers scrapbooks and how um, UW made some, um, some of the decisions they did when digitizing these scrapbooks. So the Mountaineers was an outdoor club founded in 1906. The Mountaineers collection is a selection of photographs, photographic albums, and text documenting the Mountaineers' official annual outings undertaken by club members from 1907 to 1951. <clears throat> the trips, excuse me. Pardon me. The trips were held primarily on the Olympic Peninsula in Mount Rainier National Park and on Glacier Peak. The images depict camping and climbing activities, equipment and pack horses, portraits of members, and a variety of really splendid scenic views of the Northwest. The scrapbooks themselves have, have fairly small images, and there were only one or two images per page. But what struck me when I first looked at this was the lack of context. I didn't know until I spoke with staff that there were one or two per page. I didn't know the photos were relatively small in size either. It wasn't until I got to the last page of one of these books do I see that these images were put on black paper pages common throughout the early and mid 20th century. In this collection, a majority of the text was written on the back of the photos. And in fact, the text itself is fairly minimal in this case. But because of the interest in the images themselves and the need for special collections to be able to fulfill reproduction um, orders, the decision was made in this case to treat all of the photos as individual items and to create one larger compound object in ContentDM, which is their digital asset management and access portal. The metadata record for each item appears under the page description and you can pull down, there's a pull down at the top left there and each record has an order number that's been created that links to the digital object. So there's sort of no confusion about what image the patron is trying to print. UW Special Collections really created a clean, simple, an easy one-to-one -one relationship in their records. They note in the digital collections field the relationship to the larger Mountaineers collection. But I have to admit a real sense of loss in a way. 
I didn't understand the context without interviewing staff. And in this case, the, quote, design of the album is pretty stripped down. But I didn't even know that by looking at the images. I had no way of knowing that. So let's move across the country to the University of Iowa Libraries and the African American Women in Iowa Digital Collection. Here we find a series of scrapbooks that have had each page digitized. And what they've done is they've photographed the overall page so you can see the context, the handwriting, everything here. And then they've created an item view with metadata. So when you choose a page, each photograph is also digitized and cataloged. So each item on the page is numbered sort of A, B, C, etc. And then you can drill down in the metadata for each one. You can see in this instance there's handwritten comments and names below each photo and you can see how they relate to each other. This for me is a much more successful display because I understand the context. In this album, there are also pages with names and addresses of friends handwritten into a preprinted form that says autographs, addresses, birthdays, and toasts. Athletic, entertainment, and social pages were all provided, and correspondence and clippings and programs are included all with the same overall shot and then the detail shots. Very successful. Also expensive, hard to do. This was kind of interesting, going back to the University of Washington again. Um, this is a finding aid in their um, archives, in their, in their archives collection. Um, within the finding aid, anytime you see a little camera icon, um, that means there is an image associated here. So you can click on that camera icon and you are brought to an image. When you click on the photograph, you're given a metadata record about the item. And within the full record, there's a reference back to the full finding aid at the repository collection guide field. So they've created this repository collection guide and they point back to the finding aid. So how many of you have finding aids at your institution? Anybody dealing? Yeah, a couple of you. So thinking about how to make that connection from a finding aid, which is a very uh, sort of large document, an overall glimpse, connecting it to item level materials and then item level back to the, the overall collection information. Um, I think that's kind of interesting. Um, this is a scrapbook. Um, from uh, it has, they have created a page turning application and a full page view. I was afraid of my technology, so I did not, <laughs> didn't, I, I chose to use static shots. But um, there is a page turning application that's built into this, and you get a full page view of this Kuskia um, internment camp scrapbook. Um, it was a handmade manuscript con consisting of 148 photographs and two drawings of activities and buildings related to the Kuskia internment camp. The scrapbook documents the experience of Japanese men detained during the Kuskia internment camps two years of operation in Idaho um, between uh, May of 1943 
um, through May of 1945. So you have this overall view and you have a page turning application and you can flip through in the same way that you would if you were having a physical experience page turning um, and looking at the items. You can then also click on and drill down into the individual um, items and zoom in on those so you can see those carefully. The screenshot's not great, but. Um, another, I think, um, this I found the Kuskia scrapbook to be um, a very successful application because you have that sort of feeling of the original. Well, this was, it wasn't so spendy. Um, it's an open source platform, so it's, it's not, um, it wasn't too bad. I don't think it was too bad. Um, this one here is a um, scrapbook of Kermit Breck's World War II mementos, including photos, postcards, newspaper clippings, magazines, greeting cards. The album is dark blue. It was tied together with a black string. It's 12 by 7, uh, 12 inches, 75 by 10 and a quarter inches. Um, you can go page by page. You turn and load each page one at a time. You can zoom in. The metadata is pretty minimal. In fact, I've just read you the metadata for the whole album and all pages in the album. They pretty much just use that again and again and again. Um, but the content is there. Um, and you can go in. So this is one of the items in the scrapbook. His um, wife has a gate pass to come visit um, him. Okay, so where's the magnetic album? This is, um, oh, poor John Glenn. He's now Glenn N. Jr. from, um, apologize. Um, but this is a scrapbook from the family of Theodore Freeman um, out of the um, Lewis uh, Public Library in Lewis, Delaware. It, no, he's not. So he's just in there. But this is so interesting. They chose to just digitize the single items. You have no idea that it was a magnetic album, do you? This is what it looks like. That's it. And um, they cataloged them as individual items. So I didn't even know, I mean, only because I had worked with them did I know there was a connection between the, the materials. Um, so I think that's, that's hard. Okay. Um, this is my mother's scrapbook, by the way. <clears throat> I will be dealing with this for my whole life. Um, the biggest conundrums, I think, in dealing with scrapbooks is defining the hierarchy within the scrapbook itself from a digitization perspective. You may have a page with sub-pages associated with it when you have a booklet or a greeting card, um, for example. Nice greeting card. Thanks, Mom. You can easily have an item with page-level metadata and then have to create item level metadata as well. Decisions need to be made about the aspects of each one of the items. What if the item is a pop-up, um, a matchbook, a magazine, or greeting cards? What about the angle of the photograph? What if you take multiple um, images to document different angles of an item? How are you going to deal with that? How are you going to present it? For many, the answers can be determined by what resources you can throw at a project. How detailed can you afford to be? And this is a very real question. 
Can you be consistent over time? I want to encourage you to document what you do and how you do it. And there may be items that are really precious to telling your story, and they may get more resources than something that's just interest, you know, an interesting documentary piece, but you really might not put the same kind of effort into it. Think about and try to analyze how you're going to present this to your viewers. If you have something like Content DM, they'll create compound objects, and at least in the navigation, you can kind of dig down it four or five different levels. But that's not the case for all content management systems. Open source systems allow you to create and use page turning applications and the like, but you may need some technical know-how to be able to implement that. When we look at what metadata, metadata schemas can do, Dublin Core is designed for a strict one-to-one -one relationship, one record to one item. But you could tie each item to another using the relations field. It's clunky, but it's possible to do. A METS record is really the only way to handle these really complex hierarchical relationships, but then again, not everyone has the ability to create those and not every system can manage METS records at this time. I suspect it's going to become easier over time, but try to make some logical and consistent choices, and again, document those choices. Document your protocols for the staff members that come behind you. That would be my recommendation. Um, I do have a class resource page um, in here on... Um, it's an all, on an old delicious site, but it's still active. You can find, um, there are lots of resources there. I'll leave that up for a second. So you can photograph the screen. I love that. I think that's so clever. Yeah, they have ads on there, but you can get it. And then um, just some acknowledgments from some of the people that I worked with in, in putting some of the information together that are up there. So, okay. I will pull Alex's slide up next. So, so, okay, so we've talked about this, um, you know, some of you scrapbook, or any of you guys making scrapbooks about events that take place at your institution? Like if you have Girl Scouts coming in, if you have an active volunteer group, are you guys doing any sort of scrapbooks? We have one person, two, three. I saw three. Okay, so some, some of you guys are still, still doing this. Um, I, am, I am of the... You know, when I see scrapbook pages like this, I kind of lose my mind. I'm not, and I don't, I'm not making any comments. If this is your hobby, I apologize. But this, I mean, to me, this just is, this, this is crazy. But these are going to end up with us. You know, those Girl Scouts that have been coming to your historic site for 20 years, they're making a scrapbook, and it's going to be back in your hands. And I look at this, I actually, part of my job is I deal with disaster planning and disaster readiness and disaster recovery of collections. I just look at this and think, well, that's all going to be one muddy brown color because all those inks are going to bleed. <laughs> so I don't look at this like, well, cool, fall. I look at this like, oh, don't do it. But anyway, so these things are going to come, and we have to figure out what to do with them. And 
that's fine. But this is a traditional scrapbook. We think that this is great. And this, these scrapbooks are coming to you. We've all talked about that. Those online scrapbooks that got mentioned already. <coughs> this is just a quick hit. These are companies that existed two days ago. But as we saw from Katie's video, maybe they aren't going to exist next week. These are companies that if you send them your images, or if you play on their website, they will help you create a scrapbook. And that's the term they use. Sometimes there are, there are frames, <coughs> just like the books from the 20s and the teens, excuse me, 1920s and 19 teens, that have the framing, that have places where you can make a family tree, that you have pictures for the dog, pictures for the vacation. I mean, it's all there. And you dump your digital photos into that format, and they'll print it out, and you get a book. I don't know if anybody's doing any testing as to the longevity of those items, but some of our scrapbooks now are coming out like small, glossy books. But it's still some of that content that we were pasting in. I, you know, again, from that preservation perspective, I don't know how long those are going to last. I don't know what that ink's going to do. I think a lot of them are clay-coated paper, or at least coated paper in some way. So I just think if you have any water in your collection now, you've got a block of clay. But I mean, there's, so there's some things that are coming up that are going to be in our collections, and we just don't know what they're going to do yet. So when you're talking about maybe creating a digitization project for some of those things that are, whoops, we didn't do the cell phone talk. Um, we, um, yeah, whatever. Um, so we, do, we, you know, Again, some of these things that come up, and you guys may be baking some of these. I know I'm sounding like, eh, cavalier, and I don't mean to be, because this is sometimes a great solution, especially if you have an activity, again, visitors, people working on your site. Um, I don't know if any of you guys attended some of the sessions that the Kelly Farm gave yesterday. We were talking about having corporate corporations come in, and they bring volunteers, and they help rebuild their acres and acres of fences. I can imagine a book being created about some company, Honeywell is the picture I saw, of Honeywell employees, their pictures from that day, and then a copy ends up back up at the Kelly Farm. You know? I was surprised Walgreens did this. How many of you have collection, have notebooks or albums or, or um, scrapbooks from craftspeople in your communities? Whether it was, okay, we, I saw one, you guys maybe aren't, I may, maybe not, okay. Another person, we're maybe not explaining it as well, but you know, if you had uh, a painter or a house builder, or you had, I saw a really great one that was from a wheelwright who was trying to come up with a better way to clamp his wheels. It was the coolest darn thing. Now, people are on things like Ravelry, doing examples of their projects, the yarns they used, the things they tried, what didn't work, how long it took them. And then you can see pictures of what other people did. I'm sorry, this is mine. This is weird and tacky. But I mean, to me, this is, this is now my project book. I'm not taking the notes I used to take in a notebook when I was quilting and sewing and stuff. This has now become my project book, my scrapbook. I don't think I'm donating this to anybody, but because I'm not designing anything, I'm just doing stuff. But I can imagine that these are going to end up in our collections. I haven't talked to them about how, you know, when we think about our own personal digital preservation, I don't know how to get this stuff off their site. But now I know the cousin of the designer of this plat whole platform, so I'm going to have a talk with his cousin and see if I can get them working on this. But again, I can see this kind of thing ending up. What are we going to do? If anybody's from Pennsylvania, um, you know, I just like the, the Bullskin Township Historic Society. 
they have a comments page on their website. You can talk about what you saw, you can talk about what you liked, you can talk about, hey, I found my uncle in your collections. How many of you have a guest book, whether it's virtual or online? A couple people. This becomes part of your record of your agency. What are we doing with this digital content? How are we making this scrapbook part of our collections? I think we have to come up with an answer. I don't have one. I'm just tossing it out. You guys have to work this out. And we're working quickly for other digital projects. I mean, web, web archiving, there are some tools out there, you know, the Wayback Machine, and there's some things out there we can do to do web capture of pages. Right. Websites. Yeah, and I think, and I think if you guys are doing this, if you guys are talking about doing this, if you haven't done it yet, but ooh, wouldn't this be a good idea? Really think about the long-term preservation and access to this. Look at those resources as you're designing a page because if you can build in your preservation efforts into its creation, you have a much better chance of saving that information. I'm not entirely an advocate of print it out and save it, but because not some of the databases and the clicking things, and you can't always connect all the objects and things, but if that's your only option right now, at least do that before you lose your visitors' comments. Or if, they're, if you allow people to post pictures to your website. This is, you know, we really enjoyed having, having barnyard days, or whatever your institution is. Bullskin township days. I mean, if, you know, if, that, if you're letting people interact with your site, you have to add that in because now this becomes a scrapbook of your agency. I know the last two, the, the, the slides I'm showing are really hard to see in this room, and this is an incredibly difficult one to read. But the reason I put it up there is, I don't know if you guys can see, but the icon says, the Davis Community Scrapbook. And this is from Davis, California. And the reason I'm including this is the, the text on here says, the Davis Community Scrapbook is a collection of short stories, anecdotes, songs, poems, photos, and paintings all about Davis. We have collected over 100 submissions from Davisites, I don't know their word, Davisites ages nine, or excuse me, seven to 97, and hope for hundreds of more. We all have stories to tell, and as we share, we, we will know more about Davis and have a better sense of who we are. This is a web page. This is, this is content for many people. Lee's comments about best practices and standards and how we're capturing. I don't think Davis is dealing with that um, too much. They do, ha they have a submission, they have, they have rules about how long your, your submission can be if it's verbal. They don't have anything about standards about the quality of the photograph that you add. They also, they do have links to videos which are hysterical because there's some people who wrote songs about Davis, California, and they're rocking. They're having a great time. There's no standards that they're asking for for those submissions. It's a great idea. It's really cool. And this is now the scrapbook, or part of the scrapbook of Davis, California's history. You guys can be doing the same thing. But again, as, if you're thinking about doing this kind of development, step back. Think about how you're going to collect it, how you want to collect it. And as we all know, there's no reason to collect everything. Some of the things you may not want, oh, whoops, we lost that one. Just, you know. Not everything is created equal. We don't want to spend all of our time on all of our materials. And you have to be clear about what you're doing. And maybe you have to put that caveat in, you know, not all of these things may be saved, so if you want a copy, put it on. <laughs> I would also argue that if you were to do a tweet search, if any of you people are tweeters, and I barely am, I know the word, I would think that if you search this hashtag on Twitter, you're getting a scrapbook of this event. I didn't go to Battle Dex, I'm sorry. I went home. 
cleaned up after a plumber. But there are pictures. I got to participate. I got to see what was going on. I got to, see, read, got to read people's comments. People have been tweeting about events and sessions they've been in. That becomes part of the scrapbook of this event. People might tweet about what happens in your area or at one of your events. That becomes part of the scrapbook of your agency. So it's not that I'm trying to scare anybody, but all I'm saying is that scrapbooks, even if it is a kit, that pink kit or that fall page that I showed or that it's a photo album that you put paper clippings into or your own photo albums, your own scrapbook of events, we're still going to have those paper forms, those, those analog forms. But we're going to have to start dealing and thinking about digital forms too. And um, some form we have yet to even understand or come across, right? So things may change. So my scrappy questions. Um, I want to open this up to, if you guys have any questions about what the speakers have been talking about or the just flight of fancy I just took, please feel free. Um, but I just, uh, I, I mean, I, I want you guys to talk to us. I know it's hard in this setting, and you guys are probably, it's beautiful outside, so thanks for being in the basement with us. Um, on a Saturday morning, instead of going to get signatures from the hockey team a couple blocks away. It's fan day for the wild. I'm with you guys instead of with them. Go ahead, Katie. Yeah, I mean, if you guys have any questions, please. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry, whoops, just one minute. We are recording this, so I'm supposed to give you a microphone. It, it seems to me that all through the conference we have talked about um, data, metadata, archiving, but what we haven't really talked about is storage of that data and retrieval. And I've been working on a project at, at the company I work at, and we have uh, records that are paper records. We have the old negatives and photos and then we work our way up. Well what we found was 10 years ago some of those were electronically digitized. You can't retrieve them now. It doesn't work. And the ones that were printed out from you know the little printer on the desk to put in there as a paper copy, you can't see them anymore. In 10 years they have completely faded away or they've crumbled or they've broken. And to me, I am more concerned about how we are addressing long-term storage. And then small museums, uh, if they probably do not realize the servers they're going to need to store this stuff, and it escalates and it escalates. So I don't know if anyone is addressing that. Um, yes. I mean, I think that lots of people are addressing that in terms of when you're doing digitization, using standards and best practices will allow you to f find, retrieve, and access your materials in the future. If you're creating TIFF files, you can go back and find them. But you're right in terms of planning for server space and money and backing materials up. 
that has to be thought through before you ever enter into a digitization program. You're absolutely right. Uh, to that issue, someone in our organization wondered about microfilming things. It's kind of like going back to something, but thought that in the long term, that might be a solution to what we might come upon in the future. What do you think of that? I can speak probably to both of those questions, actually. We are implementing digital to film um, as part of our digital repository solution. However, generally only for, uh, I, I wouldn't recommend it for something like scrapbooks. Um, I would absolutely recommend it as a backup for data like digital newspapers. Um, it makes sense if they don't already exist in microfilm and you only have a digital version to print them out. Um, in terms of our storage, our digital storage, one of the solutions we're implementing, and I don't know how within the reach of, of a really small institution this is right now, um, but there's a product available for a couple of thousand dollars that was uh, called Preservica, um, and that buys you um, ingest, uh, storage, access, all according to the Open Archival Information Systems model, track certified, all that, um, and a couple of thousand dollars buys you the interface for that and some storage on an Amazon Cloud site. Um, so you can't have a lot of data. I think you can have like the first package is 100 gigs, but it's sort of, uh, we're seeing these all-in-one packages start to roll out um, where you can buy server space and buy a system that's going to help you do your ingest and your man management of data. Did that answer the question? Yeah. <laughs> it is, if you want, I mean, you know, people need terabytes, but then you start getting in tens of thousands of dollars. Five thousand dollars for what, though? Uh huh. That's actually very cheap. <laughs> that might be the cheapest fifty terabytes of storage of data I've ever heard of. We have seventy right now, um, but I think there are multiple. I think we have multiple uh, either server space or like we participated in some of the locks programs. We have this Preservica option. Digital storage right now is expensive, and I think it's going to be expensive for a little while. I'm sure one of our speakers, one of our speakers, had to bail for an airport shuttle, so that's where she went. Sorry about that. Our digital expert, also. Yeah, yeah our digital <laughs> expert. Anyone else? Okay, I just have one question for you guys before the rest of you run out. Um, do you have solutions or things that you're doing with your scrapbooks that you like, that we didn't talk about, some things that you've been trying, or some things that you're just not sure about? That, I mean, that, just what are you guys doing with yours? Is anybody willing to share? This isn't a judgment session. This isn't like shame or anything. Is anybody willing to share? Uh, it, it actually depends on the depth of the uh, scrapbook. If it's primarily, uh, which is what we have, is the old flat black paper with uh, photographs in corners put onto it. So there is no 3D dimensional really to it. Uh, do those in two different ways. One, uh, to make a PDF of them and then turn that into a JPEG so that you have it in both formats. 
and then to actually take and film them so that you have a, a film record. The filming works pretty good for the three-dimensional ones, so you can put it at the best advantage and then use a, a good camera to, to do the filming. Uh, again, uh, uses lots of storage space. And, uh, like fi video filming? <coughs> video filming. Okay. Video filming. And that way you can get the true feeling of it. Um, you do have to have a, a, a good filming system, and you do have to have uh, proper lighting to do it well. Okay, well, it's beautiful outside. Thank you guys for being here. Have a great rest of the day. Thanks for coming to the conference and safe trip home for all of you traveling out of town.